Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Did you know cats tend to hide symptoms of sickness and pain? I learned this the hard way after losing my cat, Gingy. So I created Pretty Litter, a health monitoring litter that helps detect early signs of illness by changing colors, saving you money and potentially your cat's life. Pretty Litter is veterinary and developed, and it's the easiest way to keep tabs on your fur baby's health right at home. Go to prettylitter.com and use code SPOTIFY for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Forget the frustration of picking commerce platforms when you switch your business to Shopify, the global commerce platform that supercharges your selling wherever you sell. With Shopify, you'll harness the same intuitive features, trusted apps, and powerful analytics used by the world's leading brands. Sign up today for your $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash tech, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash tech. The following program has some naughty language, so if you are listening to this near little ears, make sure they have little earbuds, but you may also want to distract them. I suggest shadow puppets. It's Monday, April 25th, 2022. From Peachfish Productions, it's The Gist. I'm Mike Pesca. In Ecclesiastes, we are told the role of chance when the race is not to the swift, nor the battle to the strong. If this were covered by modern media, there would surely be a clause about the races all coming down to turnout and the battle going to the embattled. Embattled is a great way to seem to say something when you're really saying nothing, and also to say something that seems big and important. There are a couple examples of this ubiquitous trend that I could appoint to that both come from ABC's This Week This Week. First up is next week's Republican primary for senator in Ohio. Donald Trump is stumping for J.D. Vance, but Josh Mandel has another endorsement. Here's how ABC's Rachel Scott put it. Calling in Trump's embattled former national security advisor, Michael Flynn. Embattled? I mean, he's a lot of things that embattled doesn't quite get at. Flynn thinks the election was stolen. Flynn's banned from Twitter. Flynn lasted 22 days as national security advisor. So even Trump's short-lived national security advisor would carry more meaning than embattled. Here's one. Pled guilty to lying to federal officials, Michael Flynn, the former national security advisor who Trump had to pardon to keep out of jail. Okay, it's long and embattled is pithier, but embattled is also substanceless and not just the appearance of substantive. So there is the category of embattled as understating reality. Then there is embattled as overstating it. In some instances, embattled is way too descriptive. Headline, New York Times, a couple days ago. Biden tries to sell an embattled domestic agenda during his West Coast trip. I mean, I'd say Biden actually right now would like his domestic agenda to be embattled because you could win a battle. A battle has rules and conclusions, not just filibusters. I'd say battle is kinder than dead in the water, but dead in the water is more accurate. Maybe the upshot of getting shot up in a battle is what his agenda is now, which is lying on the battlefield. And of course, Biden works to sell his embattled agenda because what's a political agenda going to be if not embattled? An agenda is a plan and embattled means contested. So if you have an agenda that's not contested, it's not really an agenda. It's a fait accompli. It's a decree. Biden is working hard on a multi-state push for an agenda short of sale through Congress. Why is he doing that? How about 
This other politician, as mentioned again on This Week, This Week. Well, the polls are open here and French voters are now choosing between two drastically different visions for the future of this country, deciding whether to reelect the embattled centrist President Emmanuel Macron or to pivot to the far right and elect nationalist Marine Le Pen. I mean, Macron's purported embattlement was only in question for about 10 hours after that report aired, and then it was revealed to be not that embattled at all. Macron won by five and a half million votes, 58.5 to 41.5%. All political races between contestants for office are contested, or if you want to be hyperbolic, embattled. Macron, not embattled, triumphant. Biden's agenda, not embattled, moribund. Flynn, not embattled, former national security advisor, disgraced former national security advisor. You want embattled? Mariupol, that's embattled. The Donbass, embattled. There are real embattles occurring between literal battalions. So a truce to this dramatic embattle, just one small skirmish in covering the culture war. On the show today, my strong intuitive sense is that having a public platform that is maximally trusted and broadly inclusive is extremely important to the future of civilization. That sounds smart. Only I didn't say it. Elon Musk did. And apparently he thinks the platform is Twitter and that, my friends, is the spiel. But first, Elon plus Twitter, a conundrum. Then again, I'm a guy who starts his wordle with epoxy. If you think that's a baffler, wait until you hear my interview with A.J. Jacobs, author and uh, title character of The Puzzler, one man's quest to solve the most baffling puzzles ever, from crosswords to jigsaws to the meaning of life. A.J. Jacobs up next. This is Jess Betancourt, the host of DNA ID, the only true crime podcast that exclusively covers cases solved using forensic genealogy. DNA ID goes behind the headlines to answer your questions about this remarkable new crime-solving tool, how it works, how cases are selected, why the cases were unsolved for so long, and how the justice system is addressing it. I include input from law enforcement to give you the inside scoop that we all crave with a straightforward, no-nonsense delivery. You can find DNA ID on any podcast platform. Episodes come out weekly on Mondays. If you know A.J. Jacobs' work, you might see a through line. Like, let's take some of his books. The Know-It-All, One Man's Humble Quest to Become the Smartest Person in the World. How to Crack That Challenge. Or The Year of Living Biblically, One Man's Humble Quest to Follow the Bible as Literally as Possible. What a Conundrum. Or The Guinea Pig Diaries, My Life as an Experiment. You have to question what's going to happen going in. All of these are, in a way, puzzles conundrums. So it's not surprising that said A.J. Jacobs would be the author of a new book called The Puzzler, One Man's Quest. It's always one man's quest. He's the man. One man's quest to solve the most baffling puzzles ever from crosswords to jigsaws to the meaning of life. And we should also say that the book is not just about puzzles. It contains more puzzles than a fascinating work of nonfiction has the right to contain. And those original puzzles were written with Greg Pliska. Hello, AJ. Welcome back to The Gist. 
Thank you, Mike. I love that introduction uh, because, yeah, that is I see the world as a series of puzzles. And finally, I just decided I'm going to stop beating around the bush and dive into my passion of actual puzzles. Right. This whole thing, this whole beating around the bush, otherwise known as life and how to live your life, <laughs> dispense with that nonsense and get right down to the acrostics. Exactly. <laughs> Have you always been drawn as a kid? I do know the answer to this and Rubik's Cube, but as a kid, were you drawn to puzzles and what about them or what types of puzzles captivated you? Yeah, absolutely. Everything, uh, crosswords, mazes. As a kid, I used to draw mazes the size of my living room, uh, anything in games magazine. And I loved them for the same reason I love them now. First of all, curiosity. That's my favorite emotion or drive or whatever you call it. And also the aha moment, which they talk about that dopamine rush when you solve it and, uh, and realize, ah, for at least that moment, everything makes sense in the world. Mm -hmm. Are you generally an anxious person, would you say? Yes, I am. <laughs> Thank you for asking. I, I think I know this, having read almost all your work. And would you say that puzzles give you a sense of control, and while you're doing them, the anxiety is present but definable, and upon solving them, the anxiety is kept at bay? Absolutely. And yeah, I'm not a very good meditator, but this is my form of meditation. And I will say one of the skills I tried to develop during this book was being okay with not solving a puzzle because a lot of life's puzzles, you're never going to find the perfect solution. So you have to be okay with the process, the, uh, the journey of solving a puzzle, which is hard, which is hard. And there are some puzzles that depend on you getting to the solution. I think the crossword does, but to take the other, well, one of the other th now three big New York Times puzzles, the spelling bee doesn't really want you to come up with, quote, the solution, which is to say every single iteration of uh, four to nine letter words that you could generate from Will Schwartz's little arrangement of letters. Yeah, I mean, uh, I I agree. Uh, and I am a huge spelling bee fan. As I write in the book, I wake up at four in the morning sometimes to try to find that pangram. But I do like puzzles. There is a genre of puzzles where there's more than one answer. And uh, some puzzle uh, aficionados, that just freaks them out. But I write that that has their that has their spot positives. There's a um, I have a section on medieval riddles written by monks and these things are naughty they are like really filled with double entendres but there's no answer there's no answer book so there's a whole group of academics who are spending thousands of hours debating what is the answer to this puzzle and some of them embrace they like they love the mystery and the lack of uh, certainty which I, is hard, but uh, it has its it has its advantages. Epistemic humility. What is the sweet spot for how challenging a puzzle should be? So it shouldn't be okay. Let's you and I uh, look down, be a little supercilious. There's even a reference to this specifically in the book. A crossword puzzle should not be the TV Guide crossword <laughs> puzzle for solvers like us. Mork blank Mindy. That is not really going to fire up the synapses of our brains. And yet, if it's so challenging, at least for me, it makes me give up and say, what's the point? So, you know, is there any way to quantify or think about the appropriate level of challenge for different solvers? Yeah, I love that question because, yeah, you 
one of the my the person who wrote the puzzles for the book, Greg Pliska, he says it's so easy to create uh, an impossible to solve puzzle, and it's also easy to create the uh, an, an incredibly easy puzzle. As you say, it's the sweet spot. You want to inflict just enough pain and suffering that the release of finding that a solution is uh, is the massive dopamine hit. And challenges are are great in life. We need more. We need to practice overcoming challenges. That's one of the theses of the book: is little puzzles help us solve big puzzles. They put us in this puzzle mindset. Are the people who are into cryptography and you know puzzles are necessary as a means of communicating while evading the enemy's notice are those people when from your interaction with them are they also drawn to puzzles in their spare time or is it a uh, busman's holiday for them to be cryptographers professionally and then do a wordle or a crossword on the weekends the ones i talked to were hugely into puzzles uh and yeah that is oh. Uh, as you point out, puzzles are a huge part of life. We need them for national security, for cryptocurrency, um, for uh, for our checking account. So cryptography is a fascinating genre of puzzles. And one of my favorites, just one of my favorites, uh, subcultures. I loved diving into these subcultures because there's a, uh, a bunch of people, thousands, obsessed with this a cryptography puzzle called Cryptos, which is a sculpture at the headquarters of the CIA in Langley, Virginia. And it's basically a metal wall with thousands of uh, thousands of letters carved into it. And it's a secret code. And no one, including the CIA, has solved the code. And I got to visit and I, I don't want to ruin and no spoil. I, I didn't solve it. I didn't. Solve, I wasn't. <laughs> so, but they've been working to me that my favorite takeaway from that was grit. These people, thousands of them have been working on decoding this thing for 32 years. And when I'm helping my kid with math homework, I want to give up after three minutes. So yeah. I try to remind myself. You know, these people have been going for 32 years and they cracked part of it, but still some of it is a mystery. What did the part that they cracked? What did what did they reveal? Uh, one was a, uh, a line from the guy who discovered King Tut's tomb. Another, though, was uh, sort of a, a, a cryptic passage that indicated there might be something buried on the grounds of the CIA. Uh, so I don't know whether it's a treasure, whether it's uh, Castro's unsmoked cigar. Right. I don't know what it is, but uh, but I just love the community that has sprung up around this. What is can you put your finger on the difference between you struggle for an answer and then the answer you, you figure it out or you go to the answer key or somehow it's revealed? And I guess if it's a good puzzle, you say, Ah, clever. But if it's to you subjectively an annoying puzzle, you're like, that's what I wasted my time on. So my question is, can you put your finger on the qualities that account for the difference? And maybe part of this answer is the people who love puzzles will generally, you know, it's a good puzzle if real puzzle heads will have the, ah, that was really clever response. Yes, exactly. To me, one of the keys is it requires innovative thinking, 
Uh, I mean, the phrase think outside of the box is a bit of a cliche. It actually came from a puzzle, the one with nine dots, and you have to draw four lines to connect it. But that is really it, the thinking in an innovative, surprising way. Uh, I talk in the book how something like seven times three equals uh, seven times blank equals 21. And the answer is three. That's not a good puzzle. That's a problem. But right. uh, but something like um, uh, move. Oh, shoot. I think I have it. Oh, good. It's yeah. 30. It's I remember it. 30 minus 33 equals three. 30 minus 33 equals three. And the puzzle is move one of those digits to make this statement or formula true. So if people can picture 30, you can even write it down, 30 minus 33 equals three. So I was thinking, you know, I've seen puzzles like this and I'm like, oh, it's it's notable it said digits, right? Because there's one thing where you could like uh, rearrange symbols to make turn them into letters or I was thinking of the equal sign, but that's not it. 30 minus 33 equals three. You want to tell us the answer? The answer is to move one of the threes up, make it a little smaller, move it up. So it's 30 minus three to the third equals three. Three to the third is three times three times three, which is 27. 30 minus 27 is three. And that just requires a whole nother level of thinking, which I... I believe is what makes humans different. You know, the fact that we can come up with an mRNA vaccine, which is a totally different solution to uh, fighting viruses. That to me is what a real puzzle is. Um, so as I think about the books that I've read, there is often a puzzle in the middle of it. Um, you, you wrote a book about gratitude, which was widely about gratitude and saying thank you, but there was a central, the conceit was a puzzle or a quest about you trying to find a person who was among a group who saved your life. Um, you could talk about that a little bit, but I, I think that it's interesting that many of your books could have been written in many different ways, but the hook was an unanswered question or a puzzle. Right. And I think that that, as I say, we're wired to love to find secrets and go on these adventures and uh, and uncover the surprising truth. So that's uh, why I've been drawn to puzzles all of my life. And I do talk in the book uh, a little about puzzles gone awry, the down the downside of the puzzle mindset, because you I, I think that it is wonderful and it will help humanity. But the downside is if you are so obsessed with finding the answer and you lock in on one particular answer and are convinced it's the right one and refuse to change, then that's where you experience what's called apophenia, which is finding patterns in random noise. And that has had a huge, uh, terrible effect on society. That's QAnon is basically a puzzle gone awry. It's all these people looking for clues that don't really exist and uh, and creating an answer that is not true. So true puzzling requires extreme flexibility of mind uh, and uh, being able to have loosely held beliefs. I'm a big fan of loosely held beliefs and being able to switch because when you're doing puzzles, you cannot 
even a crossword puzzle, you cannot get locked into one word. You have to say, all right, I'm putting this in pencil. Some, maybe you do a crossword in pen, some macho people do, but I am a big fan of pencils because you have to have a probabilistic belief. I know that you know that there are many different types of intelligence and that they're debated and not all agreed upon, but is there a puzzle to your knowledge for every type of intelligence? Uh, well, that's a great, yes, I would say there, because I'm terrible at spatial uh, relations, for instance, which is why I suck at the Rubik's cube. And it took me until it took me 40 years to solve the Rubik's cube. I finally did it for this, uh, for this book, but, but the Rubik's cube, a culture is fascinating. It's these teenagers with amazing, uh, spatial intelligence who will solve it in three and a half seconds. It's crazy. Uh, and, um, and also there's just uh, jigsaw puzzles. I talk in the book how I was really snobby. That was the one genre of puzzles I looked down on as like too basic, too not sophisticated. But I was so wrong because jigsaw puzzles, first of all, they require some some types of skills and intelligence that uh, I, I, I feel I've learned about. Even something as distinguishing different shades of blue. It's all about subtlety and nuance, which is, uh, I think, an important metaphor for life. So, yeah, no sky. You're confronted with a sky in the jigsaw puzzle and you throw up your hands. But no, it's not the same blue. There's usually different shades of blue. So it's all these different skills that you need. But the but they are all unified by uh, factors such as flexibility of thinking. Yeah. That to me is one of the, cru the crucial parts. So the one thing we haven't talked about is the puzzle of the moment. I think it uh, eluded your time frame for doing the book, The Wordle. The Wordle existed, but it didn't explode until maybe after galleys were due. To what do you attribute the huge popularity of Wordle? Well, several things. First of all, I think it's a great puzzle. Secondly, as I mentioned, I love that it's uh, it's one of the few things that both sides of the political spectrum can agree on. So uh, I also think I loved the a thousand wordles that bloomed in uh, in the wake of the real wordle. So you had uh, you know loodle with naughty words, and you had uh, judel with Jewish words. And I uh, uh, my son plays Taylor Lordle sometimes, which is Taylor Swift's uh, related words. Uh -huh. And to me, this is a wonderful expression of human creativity so there was the, the other aspect of it was sort of the um the fact that it it was rationed you could only do it once Very uh, and people love yeah. that yeah and also, it's like the Ted Lasso of puzzles in that it's very nice. It's very, <laughs> it, it helps you keep track of which letters you've used. And there is, it's also unlike a lot of puzzles, right? Which there are some great puzzles, as we've talked about, with no one right answer. This does have one right answer, but there is no one right method. So you can start off with any word and everyone's journey is unique. But there is something, I think, there's a niceness to the wordle. I love that. I, can I use that? The Ted Lasso yes. of puzzles? Yes. Thank you for that. That is brilliant. Um, yeah, and I agree. And and I like the idea of there are articles about uh, AIs 
that are programmed to figure out what is the best first word. Uh, one I saw was soar, S-O-A-R-E, which is a uh, young hawk. Uh, but to me, I love trying different words every time, which some people think is just anarchy. Yeah. But to me, uh, why not? It makes it a, a little fresher, a little, uh, a little more of a challenge. A.J. Jacobs is the author of The Puzzler, One Man's Quest to Solve the Most Baffling Puzzles Ever, from Crosswords to Jigsaws to the Meaning of Life. And if you're on the fence about getting the book and say, well, how will it really reward me? If you solve a puzzle in the book, you can win $10,000. We didn't even get into that, but it is true. Or maybe not. Maybe it's unsolvable and it's just a come on. <laughs> no, nope, it is just a solvable. carnival barker. <laughs> AJ, thanks so much. Thank you, Mike. That was, uh, that was great. And now the spiel. In the abstract, who would you want to take over one of the world's most dysfunctional, but arguably important businesses? Maybe the man who has done the most to solve the world's biggest problem. The problem I'm thinking of is climate change, largely driven by drivers and gasoline burning cars. And really no one's done more to get internal combustions off the road than Elon Musk. No matter what you think of him personally, you'd have to say Musk has done more to solve one of the biggest problems in the world than any single person. Yes, I know it wasn't just him. Yes, yes, I know the problem is far from solved. And yes, 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 I know he didn't do it because he's a humanitarian. He did it for, well, a variety of reasons, but profit motive was big. And so what? He did it. So why not, when faced with a comparatively minor problem, like a website that causes a collective increase in cortisol levels among political and cultural elites, why not have this world-renowned problem solver have a whack at it? And the answer is, because he's Elon Musk. He smoke pot with Rogan, he questions vaccine effectiveness, he violates SEC rules, and he was way into Dogecoin. So what to think? Well, not really what to think, more like how to think about the world's richest man buying the world's greatest distraction. Actually, Twitter is a lot of things other than a distraction, including a sounding board, a gathering place, a proving ground, a mirror, and a Rorschach test, but it's certainly also a distraction. And we are all currently quite obsessed, one might say distracted, with Elon Musk's nearly $50 billion deal to buy Twitter. Nah, it's not as much money as Netflix lost in a day last week, but it is a lot of money. So what I want to do is not opine, good thing, bad thing, Elon and Twitter. The future is unknowable, though Musk seems to have an insight on it and on electric cars, much more informed than mine. If you want to talk about a disqualified person to talk about it, I didn't even think he was serious about buying Twitter. I just thought he liked the attention. But I do want to lay out my thinking so you can evaluate it and maybe you can put it up against your thought process. So much of the thought on this, from what I could read on Twitter, is quickly jumping to the tweeter's perception of Elon Musk. 
So it goes, I like Elon. I don't like Elon. Elon will be terrible. Elon is a terrible type of person. Therefore, his owning Twitter will be bad. But let's be more methodical. First of all, I think we do have to ask, how much can anyone improve Twitter, make it better? And how much could any one person or you know, series of person and changes make Twitter worse? Within reason, I mean, obviously, if the one person who bought Twitter was Vladimir Putin, that would have a downside or Osama bin Laden before he was dead, if he had plowed his construction money into Twitter and not jihad. It wouldn't have been good for Twitter, but I'm also going to say Twitter wouldn't have taken off had bin Laden's funds been in the seed money round. To assess upside and downside, let's think about where Twitter is now. Not just how bad could it get, we have to ask how much worse could it get and how much better could Twitter get? As far as how much worse could it get? Realistically, not that much worse, I don't think. Journalists and politicians are still on Twitter, and if it doesn't return a lot of functionality, along with frustration, it will cease to be popular. People will leave the platform. When I think about how much worse it could get, I just imagine Twitter around the year 2015. That was before any meaningful content moderation rules, which were prompted by harassment against, do you remember this one? The stars of the Ghostbusters reboot that ushered in the first round of rules protecting people from Twitter. How much better could Twitter get? I actually think it could get quite a bit better. That trending bar, which forces barely edited incendiary material into all of our brains, just to upgrade that thing to include better stories, stories from across the political and cultural spectrum, but just stop highlighting stories that are stupid, but get us to have a quick emotional reaction. I just think that could go a long way. Now we have to ask, okay, I've pictured how much better it could get, or at least I've said, I think it could get quite a bit better. I don't know how much worse it could get. You have to ask, but what about the Elon Musk of it all? What kind of policies might he deliver? And so you say, well, we don't know what his policies are until he gets there, but we have an idea. He was recently interviewed by Chris Anderson of TED Talks. And when asked, said that his first change would be to allow edited tweets. That's good. That's user-friendly. You actually have to pay a little more to get edited tweets. He'd give it to everybody, apparently. That's great. Then he was asked about tweets that might be interpreted as calls to violence or harassment. Here's Musk's thinking on that. In, in my view, uh, Twitter should um, match the laws of the, of the country of, and, and, and really, you know, that, that, there's an obligation to, to do that. Um, uh, but going beyond, going beyond that um, and having it be unclear who's making what changes to, who, to, to where, uh, having tweets sort of mysteriously be promoted and demoted with no insight into what's going on, uh, having a black box algorithm uh, promote some things and other, not, not other things, I think this can be quite dangerous. That is not, I'm not going to say extreme, but it is legally de minimis. Just don't violate laws. It's actually not corporate policy. It's a lack of policy. But it did show where Musk's head is with tweets that may offend, bother, or even harass. If, if in doubt, uh, let, let, let the speech, let, let it exist. Uh, it would have, you know, if, if it's a, you know, a, a gray area, I would say let, let, the, let the tweet exist. This is the number one reason to worry about the downside risk of a Musk regime. But I have to go back to how much worse could it get? It is very bad now. Pylons, food fights, shunnings and shamings. I don't know if the 2015 rules would make for a worse experience or just turn Twitter into gab or parlor, thus ruining Twitter. 
I really don't know. As far as upside, Musk does vow to tackle the bots. Twitter has also long vowed to tackle the bots. And those efforts have been sporadically effective. But one would think Musk would be better at it, not just because he's better at technology, but he is an owner who wouldn't care that much about turning a profit. And he'd be inclined to do a true bot purge, more inclined, I think, than current membership. Because with current membership, every time they clean up, their monthly users go down. And so if you do a true cleaning, a cleansing, a 30-day fasting cleanse, I don't know. The 330 million monthly users could be really 300 million or 270 or 230. There are a lot of bots out there. But also Elon Musk's disregard for profit could be what drives him to de-emphasize those clickbait trending articles or to reconfigure an algorithm that tends to push the most incendiary traffic. Here is Musk's plan for the algorithm. Like, I think, like, the, the code should be on GitHub, you know? So then, uh, and, and so people can look through it and say, like, uh, I see a problem here. I don't, I don't agree with this. Um, they can highlight issues, right. um, suggest changes in, in the same way that you sort of update Linux or, or Signal or something like that, you know? But as, as um, I understand it, uh, yeah. and at least one person in the 1200 seat venue liked it. Musk has a habit, however, of following through on his most audacious promises. So I wouldn't doubt that we might get an algorithm open to all. But might not a consequence of that be not merely improving the algorithm, but opening it to exploitation? Everyone would know its flaws. <laughs> Overall, there seems to be some potential upside in an Elon Musk-owned Twitter, but even his promises come with concerns. Unlike other media figures who you're worried that they might overpromise and underdeliver, promise you the stars and deliver only Stardust or CNN Plus or Quibi or the Metaverse or the Segway Scooter. You actually worry that Elon Musk will deliver on his promises. He does seem more concerned about Twitter's ability to silence than Twitter's power to amplify. But maybe if he himself sees the algorithm, it will occur to him, huh? The platform actually isn't engaged in shadow bans or clandestine silencings. Or who knows, maybe it is. I think people are actually worried about one thing, and it's this, that Elon Musk will allow Donald Trump back on Twitter. Maybe all of this, all of the concern is about, is he going to let Donald Trump back on Twitter? And I can't say he won't. Maybe Elon Musk will allow Donald Trump back on Twitter. To that, all I can say in terms of reassurance is that Donald Trump was on Twitter once, he then got himself booted off. And when he was on Twitter, he did lose a presidential election. And after he was off, he has not faded away. Twitter is a social media site, but it is, of course, also a dopamine delivery system. It's hard not to have a very gut, reptilian brain, fast twitch. Let's, let's call all of that this basket. Twitter-like reaction to everything I've laid out. So I'm just saying that before you press the like button, slow down and ponder, might Musk do for Twitter what he did for carbon emissions? Or will he allow Twitter to cater to the worst of our instincts? Or might Twitter have done exactly that without him? And that's it for today's show. Why not follow me on the as yet un-Eloned Twitter? I'm at Pesca, M-I, Pesca me, and the show is at at Pescagist. 
check out the Pesca Gist before you check out the Metaverse. Corey War is the assistant producer of the Gist. Joel Patterson is senior producer. Michelle Pesca is the techno queen of Peachfish Productions. The Gist is presented in collaboration with Lipson's Advertise Cast for advertising inquiries. Go to advertisecast.com slash the Gist. Oomperu, depru, dupru, and thanks for listening. Mm-hmm.